0: good evening I am Vivian Fisher manager of the african-american department here at the Pratt library on behalf of the library direct the library CEO dr. Carla Hayden the boards of trustees and directors and the Pratt staff I welcome you here to the Pratt library and the Eddie and Sylvia Brown lecture series it is also my it is my pleasure to introduce to you our guest speaker this evening, Dr. Robert A. Hill. Dr. Robert A. Hill is Professor Emeritus of History at UCLA and Director of the Marcus Garvey and University Negro Improvement Association Papers project. The project has been housed on campus at the James S. Coleman African Studies Center since 1977. Dr. Hill's interest in Garvey began in high school when he wrote an essay about him and won a prize for it. After winning the prize, Dr. Hill began meeting dozens of Garvey followers, also known as Garveyites. In his native country, Jamaica, Dr. Hill is internationally recognized as a leading authority on the life of Garvey and the history of the Garvey movement. In recent years, he has received invitations to speak on Garvey from institutions throughout the United States, as well as the Caribbean, England and Africa. He was guest curator of the National Endowment for the Humanities funded Marcus Garvey Centenary Exhibition at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black History for Black Culture of the New York Public Library and was an advisor to the government of Jamaica on his Garvey centennial. This evening Dr. Hill will discuss Ethiopian princes in America 1904 to 1940 and the formation of African-American identity. Also he doesn't know that I know this but Dr. Hill just had a birthday on October 27th so happy birthday Dr. Hill. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Robert Hill to Baltimore and the Pratt Library.
1: Thank you very much for that very warm welcome. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've been just absorbing the wonderful atmosphere of this beautiful library. Um, and also the auditorium, it's not often that I get to lecture uh, in in settings like this, so I appreciate it all the more. Um, What I'm going to show you this evening is something about the history of African-American culture that I don't think many people here uh, know very much about. So, what I would say is welcome, sit back, relax, and just think of this as a, like a PBS documentary. Um, There are two concepts that I want you to bear in mind uh, throughout the lecture. The first is the concept of avatar. And the second is culture hero. Um, That's a photograph of the great Ethiopian Emperor Menelik II of Ethiopia. And it is the impact worldwide, but particularly on African American culture and thought that we'll be describing and looking at this evening. The term avatar, some people pronounce it avatar, is actually a Sanskrit word meaning descent. So people who descend from a particular deity are regarded, are viewed as avatars of that deity. Now, the people we're going to be looking at this evening could be said spiritually and culturally to be descendants of um, Emperor Menelik because they owe their inspiration to Emperor Menelik. Now, the word avatar, the Sanskrit word, literally means Hindu myth, the descent of a deity to the earth who comes to the earth in an incarnate form. It also means the manifestation in human form or condition. Thirdly, the manifestation or presentation to the world of a ruling power or object of worship. Uh, This is very important, that third use, because Emperor Menelik was in fact a ruling power and In many ways, that's what African-Americans and people in the African diaspora prize most of all about him. He's a ruling, ruling sovereign who manifests power. The concept of culture hero is one used in cultural anthropology and mythology. And it means a historical figure who embodies the culture, sort of symbolizes the culture of a particular society, and is frequently considered to have founded or shaped that culture, and more generally, a person who is prominent or important within a particular culture. Now, we have culture heroes in our history, And we also have avatars. And the question before you this evening is to decide whether these avatars of Menelik, as I call them, are avatars or whether they are imposters. I don't know the answer. I I think that you can decide Uh, yourself on that question, and when we come to the end, maybe we'll have time for questions and conversations. Or maybe it's not either-or. It's possible to be both an avatar and an imposter. I don't know. You will choose. Now, these are photographs of the gentleman that we are looking at today. But he was renowned not only because he was a powerful emperor, the man who unified the kingdom of Ethiopia, but he's also renowned because of his empress, his wife, Empress Taitu. Empress Taitu, people attribute Ethiopia's victory in the battle, famous battle of Adowa in March of 1896 against the Italian army, the only African nation ever to defeat a European army on the field of battle. She, in many ways, people say, was the backbone of the Ethiopian army. She was a leader, military leader, on the field of battle in her own right. This is a very beautiful Ethiopian tapestry commemorating the famous battle that waged in March of 1896. And it is the victory of the Ethiopians in this famous battle that sent shockwaves all over the African world. That's a photograph on the left of some of the Ethiopian warriors. And on the right, uh, Emperor Menelik II with soldiers and political and social leaders in Ethiopia. This is a photograph that I just found last night. It shows the 116th commemoration of the of the Ethiopian victory of Ottawa. In Ethiopia, just this year, the hundredth and sixteenth anniversary, and there you see um, an Ethiopian soldier, old veteran, celebrating the victory of Ethiopia in the Battle of Adowa. Now, the first item that we have in the genealogy we're tracing this evening. Is this newspaper report from the Gazette Telegraph from New York in October 1905? El Hag Abdullah Ali Sadiq is visiting in this country. New York, October 22nd. El Hag Abdullah Ali Sadiq Pasha, Prince of the Mohammedan Church. General of the Abyssinian Army, Minister of Commerce, and envoy of Menelik to President Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, arrived here today on the steamer Cedric. He comes ostensibly in regard to the new treaty of commerce between this country and Abyssinia, but actually his mission is to study the possibilities of closer relations with Ethiopia and America. Um, This man is clearly an imposter, but what's important is that he comes to America after the famous treaty between the United States and Ethiopia, presenting himself as an emissary of Menelik. This is 1905. Now, there's a whole biography of this imposter that I could relate to you this evening. I just don't have time and so I'll just give you a sample. Here is another newspaper report. An Abyssinian prince visiting New York claims to be a direct descendant of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Trying to put over that old family stuff in the Nicobaca neighborhood exclamation. In other words after 1900 you see this steady stream of black um, people coming into America and also into Europe claiming either to be emissaries of Menelik or relatives of Menelik. Now, this is very interesting. The Chicago Defender in March 1910 runs this advertisement, the Menelik Independent orchestra, furnishing the very best music for dancing in the city. In other words, black folks were grooving on Menelik. And as you will see in many, many ways, they absorb and reproduce the imagery and the idea of Menelik. Here is a street parade of the Shriners in september 1913 in the chicago defender and this is a small item that i've just blown up so that you could read it great oriental band of 75 pieces direct from cairo egypt will give the night will give the 8th regiment band cards and spades and then best them in the most beautiful discordant notes ever played by living man Prince Paikolapo, the Arabic temple builder and great-great-great-grandfather of the son of Ut from Memphis, Egypt, will lead the camel presented to him by the late King Menelik. In the culture that's so important in African-American life, the, the Masonic culture, Menelik becomes central to that. Now, Menelik was reported 11 times to have died, and each time the report proved false. And in um, 1914 comes this item, not dead but liveth. King Menelik still reigns from Paris January 9th. King Menelik of Abyssinia, one of the oldest kings in the world, who was reported dead for the 11th time on December 17, 1913, is still alive from an official report received from Addis. African-American newspapers are consciously tracking the reports of Menelik. And then Menelik dies in 1914, or late 1913. And this is an editorial from the Chicago uh, Chicago Defender. Quote, King Menelik of Abyssinia, who recently died, was indeed a great man. Even though the country over which he ruled was comparatively small, his fame was worldwide. Now... We jump ahead to 1915, January of 1950. This is a small item in the Chicago Defender social columns, and this is called With the Westsiders. Now, go to write down here. In the afternoon, the Epworth League gave a very interesting program, and at night, the choir came out in full and gave those who attended the evening service one of the finest treats in music ever rendered in their hall. Mr. H.R. Ridley, president of the Menelik Intersocial Club, 1334 West Fulton Street, entertained the 80 members and their friends at a Christmas dinner. The Menelik Intersocial Club, over and over and over you see the reproduction, the identification with the name and the meaning of Menelik, whether it's in music, whether it's in Masonic affairs, or just social affairs. The Menelik Club, a large number of ladies were out Thursday and Sunday evenings to attend the regular weekly socials given by the Menelik Club. These sisters are dressing up and having social events in the name of the Menelik Emperor of Ethiopia. Now you will not find this mentioned anywhere, addressed anywhere in the books and historiography of African-American History. Here is an item from the Lodge Directory from the Chicago Defender. King Menelik Council number one, Ancient Order of Ethiopians of America. The Queen Esther Temple number 10, and then the Knights of Omar. Chicago will now have a dramatic order Knights of Omar, and the order will be known as Menelik. Temple number one. This is fascinating, and I kept this column from the Chicago Defender because I wanted you to see the display advertisements. But then look at this at the, look at this at the bottom. Ancient order of Ethiopian princes. Little, little thing. But you know how significant this must have been in the life of the participants in that order? And then we find this, an Abyssinian prince in a hand-me-down stunt, New York, June 17th. It is reported that Fred W. Milan, K of C, supervisor in in Constantinople, has received a most novel request from one of the royal family of Abyssinia. This man of royal blood is Prince Oshra Beel, 31, and unmarried. The prince offers to make any American a sheik in Abyssinia who will provide him, the prince, with a position in his concern, which will provide him maintenance, in accord with his status. So far, none of the American title grabbers have seen fit to consider the prince's offer. This is amazing. Here you have people trying to run this game of being sheiks and princes from Ethiopia. This is very interesting. Brother Mike, you might like this the Ethiopian prince. This is a boxer. Ethiopia has again stretched forth her hand, this time beckoning to Harlem to witness the arrival on the wrestling horizon of Prince Tokamu of Ethiopia, who was given the works in his last bout, but who returns to the war, to the ways of the Star Casino on Monday night. The the identification with Ethiopia means appeal, power, cultural sovereignty. Here is something from the stage, R. Henry Strange. Mr. R. Henry Strange, 52 years old, a noted elocutionist who made a national reputation playing King Menelik with Williams and Walker's Abyssinian uh, Company, died on Friday afternoon. In other words, again, this man identified with the role of Menelik. Here is something from the Baltimore Afro-American, November 30th, 1929. A play, a musical called Takazi, and you see the list of char- the cast of characters at the very top. Man- Menelik, King of Abyssinia. An opera in New York City in 1937, the American Negro Opera Association, here will render a portion of the third act of the opera Menelik by penman Levingood at a benefit for the Joint Maritime Council. Here is another small item for your health and happiness from 1937. Menelik-inspiring incense, 75 cents. There was nothing that was not associated with, in black culture, with the imagery of Menelik. And why then do we have nothing, absolutely nothing, in the historiography of black American culture that mentions this? Partly it's because historians don't regard this stuff. They see this stuff as something for the little people who apparently amuse themselves with this. And they couldn't be more wrong. This is not tracked in people who do research in African-American history. And I am trying to make the argument to you this evening that this is central to how African-American identity and the cultural imagination of African-Americans was formed in the 20th century. Let me go back. Um, A real princess with Pryor. (laughs) I wonder if this is famous American comedian Pryor's family. Member of quartet with band at Willow Grove. At Willow Grove, Arthur Pryor enters today upon The second week of his engagement, much of, I can't read that, much of interest has been added to the general engagement through the fact that Conductor Pryor has a real prince of the realm with him, Prince Ilma head of the Prince Ilma Quartet and the something of a, and the possessor of a remarkably rich baritone voice. Prince Ilma is a nephew of King Menelik of Abyssinia and was educated as a civil engineer. Now, This gets really serious at this point. We have been just kind of teasing you, showing you these little odd um, reports of different uses of the concept of Menelik. Now this gets very serious. In July of 1916, a man by the name of Henry McIntyre and his wife, Hattie, they were confronted by a policeman who had come to serve them a summons they were apparently expecting this because they were heavily armed they shot and killed the two police who showed up at their house on the west side of chicago and then they went on a rampage and they killed four or five of their neighbors. This became quite a big event, threatened a mass race riot in Chicago, and because these two individuals were so heavily armed, the police decided they weren't going to take a risk. They decided to dynamite the building where the McIntyres were. After dynamiting the building and blowing off the skull of Hattie McIntyre, who had defended herself with two guns, the police entered the building and they found two scraps of paper, one of them declaring that Henry McIntyre, he scribbled on a note something to the effect that his goal was to plant an African-American colony in Ethiopia. And this is the report describing who they called, the man they called a Negro fanatic. Now, that's a photograph of the police waiting outside the building with rope, with dynamite. And if you read down here, it'll describe how these events unfolded. So here we have a supposed Negro fanatic and his wife who get blown up by the Chicago police in July of 1916. But then they find... In the destroyed apartment a piece of paper in which this man says, look to the right over here, the explosion blew the rear porch and part of the kitchen into the alley and the police found the building a wreck. They found an explanation of McIntyre's deed in a note which he had scrawled in lead pencil on a rolled-up piece of wrapping paper. And this is what the note said. The Almighty God has made me a prophet unto all nations, and also my wife, Hattie McIntyre. You shall know that the Lord has sent me to gather unto the Lord the remnant of the Adonic seed. At this place, in the scroll, the Negro wrote three capital C's and the initials T-H. Continuing, the Lord has made me the savior of all Africans of America, and now I shall recommend all that are worthy unto my heavenly Father, the great God of all creation. The Lord has given me a spirit to judge the quick and the dead. I must die in this land that I may carry my reports unto Almighty God concerning the land of the United States. Now, in addition to that note scrawled in his hand, the police find a letter that he had written to the son of King Emperor Menelik that is the envelope the letter was sent in 1913 and it came back unopened and here is this is the actual letter and that's the son of Emperor Menelik who McIntyre had written to and this is what the letter says Prince Johannes El Menelik, Addis Ababa, Abyssinia, January 15, 1916. Dear friend, I write to inform you that I am a descendant of, of the Abyssinian race of Africa and that I have organized a church and also an immigration league in the name of the Abyssinian government. Although I were never over there myself, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I know nothing about the country or government of Abyssinia except what my father taught me or I read in books, dear sir. My father taught me from childhood that Abyssinia was my country and that King M. Menedek was my king. And ruler. there are 10 African subjects here in America who know practically nothing of Africa. Some of us don't believe that the African race has a great king, dear sir. Has a king, dear sir. There are thousands of loyal African people that are willing to come back to Abyssinia, if our beloved king, Jesus, will permit us, O king. We have clearly repented for the sins of our forefathers who immigrated from Africa hundreds of years ago, and now I humbly ask, as your dear beloved prince, and also the heights of our beloved emperor. Allow us to return in the name of God and our father. Now I humbly ask our beloved prince to teach me worship of the church of Abyssinia, so that I can teach those who are following me. There are so many African people here in America who have never seen King Menli picture in the year 1909, whilst reading the history world, I saw King Menelik's picture in, and I cut the cut the something out of the book and put it in a frame. I've seen that dozens of times in Jamaica, Rastafarians, had anything pertaining to Ethiopia or the emperor Haile Selassie. And they frame it, and you'll see it pasted on the walls of their homes. Um, Well, I saw King Menelik's picture, and I cut the out of the book and put it in a frame, took to the church, and took it to the sacred altar in the church. If my beloved emperor there, Menelik, and the people bows their faces towards ground three times, and then takes their seats and sing praises to King Menelik. Oh, let our beloved King live forever. Our heart has melted, and we are willing to do anything that the government says. Dear Prince, give my love to the holy government of Abyssinia, and Soon as possible, from humble son of African descent, Henry P. McIntyre. Have you ever heard of this man? This is a man who gunned down six people in Chicago in 1916 and almost precipitated a race riot, and he is enthralled as a follower to the authority of Emperor Menelik. This is amazing. Now, how did he come into contact? with this idea of Emperor Menelik and Ethiopia. Here is what happened. Oh, by the way, this is him. That's Brother McIntyre. That's his wife, Haki. This is the destruction of their apartment. And those are the guns that the police have captured from his apartment. It so happened that there was a man in Chicago in 1930 calling, calling himself Crown Prince Johannes. That's the man that McIntyre has written the letter to. He convinced McIntyre that he was going home, back to Abyssinia. And McIntyre wrote to him to tell his father Emperor Menelik, that he had started a church and an immigration league, and he wanted to come home. Now, this man, Crown Prince Johannes, has a whole history that I won't bore you with. But he first showed up in Detroit in 1907. <laughs> Read this Crown Prince of Abyssinia pleads in vain for sausage. He shows up at an Italian man's grocery store, starving from hunger, and begs him for some food. Will you kindly give me a piece of sausage, he asked, in a foreign accent. I have nothing for you, said the butcher. Go to the McGregor Mission, around the corner. And then he says, I am a thousand times obliged to you, said the colored man. And in a few minutes he was in the mission declaring himself to be Prince Hendrik Paul Kulawaro, Crown Prince of Abyssinia, and the destitute successor to Emperor Menele. All these people claiming to be related to the Emperor, the son of, the nephew of, and having title to the throne of Ethiopia. Now, this guy, his father, Benedict, signs an agreement with Great Britain. And he says, I'm very upset. I don't want to signing any agreement with Great Britain. And threatens to come home to Ethiopia to overthrow this father. Somehow, McIntyre hooked up with this man claiming to be Prince Johannes of Ethiopia. And that's what planted the idea. But McIntyre says, I got it from my father. My father taught me to I was you. You are an Ethiopian. Now, we shift the focus to two additional figures. I wanted to focus on three. One was McIntyre, and now comes the third. This is a man who turns up in 1904 here in the United States, calling himself Reverend C. Chickles. Can you pronounce his name? Do you see, can you read it? He claimed to be an Ethiopian from Trinidad and he goes on to have, that's the name, C-H-E-C, L-Z-Z-L-I, of Princeton University and Abyssinian Africa. That's a photograph of Reverend Father. he's now GF Cheklazi, B-S-C-M-A. Says, Columbia has a distinct, this is Columbia, South Carolina. <clears throat> Columbia has a distinguished visitor yesterday. The visitor himself admits the distinction for three, for three read, what's it?
0: For thus read, his card. for thus read, thank you, his card, hmm. which besides this legend bears his portrait. Check this
1: out. This is what the card reads. Permissible greetings of the international ambassador of Jesus Christ to the courts of a heterogeneous race of color, B.C., Chetuzzi, M.D., M.A., Ph.D., V.S.C., former ecclesiastical commissioner of King Emperor Menelik II of Abyssinia to the St. Louis World Fair and former educational commissioner of Morris Brown College of Georgia and present Dean of Princeton Theological Seminary of Indiana. By birth a Trinidadian of Ethiopian descent, world's educationally, historical, ethnological, moral, sorry to give you such a warm time, uh, world's educationally, historical, ethnological, moral, theological, and chronological preacher, lecturer, and educator the race of color, a destiny of the 1920s. Um, Checkers, consonants, academic titles, and all came to Columbia from North, where he delivered an address Friday night, he says, on progressive radicalism of the age. Now this man traveled all across America and black audiences attended his public lectures, and he wowed them with his mastery of the English language. How come he's never been picked up in any of our history books? People are enthralled with this concept of some kind of divine destiny associated with Ethiopia. That's him here again. And here it's Reverend C.F. Cheklazy, B.S.E. M.A., and graduate of King's College, Oxford, and the University of Berlin, special ecclesiastical envoy of King Menelik of Abyssinia, and a descendant of a line of priests <coughs> going back 3,000 years or more, is spending a few days in this city. That's the brother, a trini! we who come from the West is know exactly what's going on. He played mass but he he is in America and he has appropriated the Ethiopian identity and he's now playing it out. but this is him. Here's another shot of the brother. I love this one with the best assurances of C.F. Cheklesi, D.E.P.H.E.D.M.A., Minister, Educator, Lecturer, formerly the Ecclesiastical Envoy of Emperor, Ras L. Menelik II of Ethiopia, Educational Commissioner of Morris Brown College of Atlanta, Georgia, Dean of Princeton Normal Institute, Present President of the Ethiopian Preachers, of ethnological, ethical, religious, and economical truths. This is a boss man. (laughs) He dies in Atlanta in 1938 from a heart attack. And in the birth certificate, which the police find on him in Atlanta, his place of birth is listed as Trinidad. Now, here's another gentleman. Can you try to pronounce his name? (laughs) This is the man with the longest name that I think we have ever encountered. This man and Chetilzi had started out together and then they had a falling out. They quarreled and then they went. Their separate ways. We have never found out for sure where this man came from. But in 1926, the American government arrested him and tried to deport him. And they couldn't because they didn't know where to send him to. He only had this identity. I call him the whiz Whipsy Wizard Solomon Jeremiah Chalalazeed. Now, Chilalaziz will die in an auto accident in Dallas in 1944. Mm. And when he is buried, they say, the man with the longest name in history died today. This is the immigration moksha while they're trying to deport them. See, if I came here and told you this stuff, you wouldn't believe me. This stuff is better than fiction. And not to put too fine a point on it, in 1936, a sister gets into the act. (laughs) She calls herself Rasari Heshla Tamanya, Ethiopian princess and cousin to Emperor Haile Selassie. And she becomes a sensation in Harlem in 1936. So there you have it. These are just a smattering, a, a, a sliver of the dozens of people that I have identified, trading on this identification with Menelik, or Ethiopia or Ethiopian divinity. Are they avatars, or are they imposters? I leave that answer to you.
0: Thank you very much. Okay, we have questions? Yes.
1: Any questions? Yes, I so, um, what led you to begin tracking these What interested you in particular part of I, I wish they had. They captured me. Because I come from Jamaica and I've spent years studying the origin of Rastafari, yeah. I was immediately struck. I had picked up in the 1970s in a file in the National Archives, an FBI file, the WIDs, Wixie wizard Solomon, Jeremiah, Chalala's and I just put him in a file because I said, one day, I will find the time to dig into it. And over the years, I would come across tidbits, a little piece here and a little piece there, and the file kept growing. And one day, I just decided to take the plunge. But once I took the plunge, I found that he wasn't the only one then i found that he had had this relationship with chikelizi and they have fallen in fact it's chikelizi who turns him in to the to the government mm. in other words you have two imposters who fall out and of course they one writes on the other but here's the point if there were no people interested in the message that they brought they would have been, wouldn't have had any, any purchase. So the question is not whether one of them or both of them are imposters. It's, they have, there is a demand coming from within our community for this message. And they have discerned that and picked up on it. And I'm delivering that message. But I can't tell you why one day I just decided to uh, pursue it. Yes, sister. Professor Hill, with so many messages coming
0: at the same time. Yes. Persons who are actually following these people or believing um, in them mm-hmm. and the context that they present, are they, are they wholeheartedly... Um convinced or are they people who have multiple memberships in other th- many different organizations of the period and this becomes just one more thing? How sincere are the followers is, is what I'm trying to get at?
1: Well, it's not just one type of follower. You have the musical culture of Black America who caught on to identification with men and You have the fraternal orders who cotton on to men. You have the women and their social entertainments they cotton on to men, and then you have the religious aspect. So it's operating at many different layers. So when Garvey comes into America, people are puzzled: Why are separate black people responding to this African message? My feeling is that wrong has been made. The African, particularly the Ethiopian, is a culture hero. Menin is a culture hero. And it's hard to be trying to mine this data as well as interpret it. I wish we had some, some associates who would take.
2: Take it on because, see, the answers to your question really require an army of researchers. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Yes, Doctor, um, give thanks for the
3: work you're doing. Bless Bless
2: Yes, give thanks for the, yes, the work that is being done, and certainly as you speak of the historiography on. African-American and Ethiopian relations and how that can be... be well, it's, 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 it's marginalized, and certainly your work is, is putting it in, in front and forefront in terms of academics. I, am, I too, am I'm seeking to pursue some of that work uh, at the, the graduate level, and so I am certainly thrilled that you have this body of, of, of work that can be built on. Uh, but as it pertains to identity and the notion of identity in America as we're challenged, especially African-Americans are challenged on the lower ebb of identity, once calling themselves all different kinds of things. How do you see the the identity of Ethiopian, Ethiopians as a, uh, uh, a change, if you will, uh, to the negative, both the stereotype and also the embracing of, by African-Americans to negative identities, how do you see Ethiopian Ethiopianism as a potential substitute and, and thereby an elevation and upliftment of African Americans within this experience at this time? Well brother, I gave this lecture in Addis Ababa last eight Francis
1: April, April of two thousand twelve. And the Ethiopians who came to the lecture were absolutely stunned and amazed. They had no concept, no conception that the power of this figure of Menelik to reach out across the black world and draw in um, support and identity, they had no idea. Part of the problem is that as black people, we've been divided. We need to communicate the fruit of this research to Ethiopia, and Ethiopians communicate back to us their meaning of menelik and empress type. That's a fundamental weakness in our research, and you here in the academy have a responsibility to work to break down this kind of intellectual partitioning of knowledge. This is very important for Ethiopians on the continent of Africa to know. But part of why we don't is because I think a good many of us are embarrassed by this kind of knowledge because we think it betrays uh, to the Western world a kind of uh, fabulation that we're not proud of. Me, I, I would stop everything I'm doing to pursue this. Because the thing that fascinates me is how, when you take the gist of the Ethiopian concept, how do these people play it out? How do they fashion it and build on it? It's incredible. Every people must have culture heroes. Ethiopia is the center of our cultural identity in that sense. So, when Rasta emerges in the 1930s, why should we be surprised? Moreover, because these people claim to be relatives and family members, they are always coming from outside. You can't, you can't very well be African-American, known to be African-American, and, and then just get up on day and proclaim yourself. In other words, these are outsiders, black people, foreigners, fulfilling a need here in the African-American community. And you know what? My suspicion is that the majority of them, if not all of them, I was So it's not surprising when Haile Selassie is crowned emperor and Jamaicans then embrace Selassie as a deity. In other words, that letter from Henry McIntyre to Prince Johannes has remarkable echoes of what will come about in 1932 in Jamaica. With the foundation of Rasta, okay. But thank you for your question.
4: Yes, brother. Dr. Hill. Thank you and good and good evening. Good evening. Uh, my question for you tonight is: uh, What do you acknowledge in your presentation of King Amilék tonight? What do you acknowledge as the next uh, thrust, if you will, of Pan-Africanism in terms of development of African image, culture, and ideology? here in the Western Hemisphere and in the Eastern Hemisphere.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a historian, brother. I studied the past. I am not a prophet. Uh, I can't tell which way it's it's going to move. What I respect fundamentally is that when people make choices about their identity, you must respect that. Okay. Now, what our community will do tonight and tomorrow and the day after in terms of the things that they select to embrace. I will be there to study it, but I can't can't prophesy that. What what I can say is that it's not going to come from up here in our community. Up here in our community never creates anything. It always comes from the taproot. The taproot in the culture is what sends out these uh, feelings. Now, you and our brother, because you are educated and you are articulate, you will then pick up on that and then dispersively disseminate it. You see what I'm saying? just like Ciclase. Ciclase came to America in 1904, worked at the St. Louis World's Fair, and when the World's Fair was over, I think that name Ciclase was given to him by an Italian at the World's Fair. He then takes the Ethiopian concept and runs with it. So it's always going to come up from the taproot, but then you have to Open yourself to that energy. If you go to church on Sunday and you just look at who are the people creatively deploying the spirit, it's not coming from the class of PhDs. Okay? At any rate, I can't prophesy, I can't foretell, but I am listening. And we all here must do the same listen. Sorry. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yes. Good evening, Dr. Hill. Good
4: evening. Thank you. Uh, what, w- I came in somewhat on a, on a late end, but yes, I saw you like it, the yes. But it is a renaissance that you have, when I saw the flyer, I said, this is, again, a continuation mm-hmm. as you spoke up from the bottom up. Yes. The ancestral. Yes. Coming up. Yes. Sir. Okay. That is the piece that is reaching out, irregardless of religious, mm-hmm. social uh-huh. connotation or meaning yes. or references. We're looking at something that the word is going for. Right? Mm-hmm. Constantly, mm-hmm. obviously, as of this year, August the 23rd, mm-hmm. there was a commemoration at Fleetwood Dock. Of ancestral middle passage okay a something that is ongoing Yes, the ball is moving once again okay once again your being here we in attendance yeah. being here your work is a continuation of that commemoration it is the issue of commemoration that must be ongoing that is what we are all being tapped with mm-hmm. to continue that, mm-hmm. because the mantle is there. They have been okay. waiting for us okay. over and over and over again. For yes. well, so it's
1: not lost, you know, brother. No, it isn't. It can be found. Oh, it is. This remnant. is demonstrating that if you pursue it, it's not obliterating no. the remnants but you must have a memory. Yes. What you call commemoration, I call memory. Yes. This is an exercise in cultural memory. Bless up. give thanks for your kind words. Sister. We'll take two more yes. questions.
3: Thank you very much for this presentation. Um, there's a large Ethiopian community mm-hmm. in, between Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia yeah. that has come in recent years. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you've had any dialogue with them um, and what heritage do they bring? Okay. I didn't know if you had any comment on that.
1: I The only comment is short and I have not. But what I know, because I have many Ethiopian friends on the West Coast and on the East Coast, what I know is that several of the young people coming to adulthood in the Ethiopian community are finding themselves in trouble, adjusting to the cultural uh, situation in America. And many of them, frankly, are lost. The young members of the Ethiopian community should and could benefit from knowing about this, because between them and the African-American community, they simply don't know the history that ties our community to Ethiopia. And it's something that I think could be of real benefit. But no, I don't have any uh, experience of lecturing to Ethiopians here in the US. I was invited to come here and lecture. And I was trying to think, well, if this is a public community event, I'm not going to do something academic. I thought of something that might have you know, broad appeal. And that's why I chose this, because I'm also anxious to get the word out.
3: Have you have you ever visited Walters next door? No. I
1: I hope for tomorrow. That is what
3: got me interested in Ethiopia. They had uh-huh. an exhibit about ten or fifteen years ago called "In Search of Alexander," uh-huh. and that's where you saw the evolution mm-hmm. of and you saw all of the Christian rituals that were part of the Ethiopian heritage.
1: Absolutely.
3: Which was um, very fascinating to me. Yes.
1: Ethiopia is an ancient country (laughs) with an ancient history and culture. And African Americans are picking up on the antiquity and the sovereignty of Ethiopia's culture. And they want to be part of it. And that's why they are responding. Okay, one more question.
3: So um, I was struck in um, with the events around McIntyre. It was around, I guess, nineteen oh five, something like that, and it uh-huh. made me think of Booker T. Washington. This was a time when Booker T. Washington really was at his height of power. The whole idea of let's let's forget about political power, let's think about economic, let's get think about jobs. Mm-hmm let's think about economic uplift, let's just think about getting that ball rolling. And um, as powerful as that message was, it left kind of a, a vacuum in the vision because there was no, let's forget about the political side. And then I went thinking about when it comes into um, the influence of, 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 this, of this Ethiopian culture as maybe um, supplementing, um, providing that sort of political nourishment of this is a vision where we can go beyond just trying to get some jobs together, something more. And I was just wondering if there's, if you've ever seen some sort of link between maybe uh, what was going on in other areas in sort of in African-American political leadership and the ascendancy of this this kind of vision.
1: Mm. Um, Not really, I would say two things. The kind of articulateness that Henry McIntyre brought to his gospel where he says, you know, he, in effect, is the prophet. And he's going to shed his blood for the redemption of African America. Um, See, that wasn't supposed ever to happen. You must remember that this period in American history, particularly in African American history, is referred to as the Nadia Point. This is the lowest point, or highest point if you prefer, of Jim Crow. Black people are utterly in the views of the mainstream African American and American society dispossessed. They have no thoughts. They have no ideas. And yet this man and his wife are projecting onto the world outside of them a vision of some kind of liberation. Now they obviously become Agitated and the police kept coming and serving summonses on them. And I think they just got fed up and they decided to have it out. But I prefer to look at it in terms of what was to follow. In 1919, there was a major riot in Chicago. Not the race riot, but the Abyssinian riot. Have you all heard of the Abyssinian riot? In Chicago. Um, this was a riot that occurred in late 1990 when a group of so called Abyssinians were walking on the south side, parading and demonstrating, and they stopped and they burned an American flag, but they were well armed, and some white sailors who were in the vicinity, came and rushed them, and they opened fire on the sailors. It turns out that the people responsible for the protest march were called the Star Order of Ethiopia. Several of them, I believe, were somehow connected back to this man, Henry McIntyre. In other words, by putting the events of Henry McIntyre together with the famous Abyssinian riot of 1919 in Chicago, you begin to see an underground formation, a subterranean underground formation which erupts from time to time. And it is around this question of we are Abyssinians, we are Ethiopians. We respond. We are governed by a different drama. It is this idea of sovereignty, black racial sovereignty, that was never supposed to happen. How, how black people manage to preserve this idea of their independence and sovereignty, to me, is nothing short of a miracle, and it was Ethiopia, it was the mythology of Menelik that helped to bind them with this ideology of independence and sovereignty. So what I would like to go back and do now is to trace out the Abyssinians of 1919 and Henry he couldn't have been the only one. But you see, it's hard to do this research. How are we going to go back and find documentation given the destruction of so much of our people's archives? But I still believe that there are shards of memory laying all about And if we are diligent and focused and committed to the task, we can begin to piece this together. It's almost like archaeology. But this to me is what's exciting. Seeing how people break through and recreate themselves culturally through the use of their imagination. Okay? All right, well, I think that will be it.
0: Thank you all for coming out. Thank you, you. you, Dr. Hill, for that very exciting, thought-provoking lecture. Thank you so much. Thank you
1: for inviting me.